Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I, I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. So lovely uh, to, uh, for you to be along with us this morning. Uh, we've got a good show. It's uh, going behind the scenes, pulling the curtain back on the making of documentaries, and in particular, an infamous documentary, Fire and Fury, which was this uh, documentary told about the protest, not from the protesters' point of view, but from the journalists' point of view, uh, who were running, as we know, the government narrative and how they picked people to tell the story and how they used them and then manipulated the footage. Ali Evans is coming on the show to explain that. You're gonna, You're going to enjoy it, I think. Uh, and please send us a text, uh, 2057, email me, inbox at radleycheck.radio. I love your feedback. Get comfortable. Get seated. Try not to get too angry uh, because Ali's telling us the story of how she went to Wellington and became famous in a documentary talking about something she never, ever thought she'd be talking about. This is what we're going to learn today. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing, and the app is now live. You can visit the app stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything. From listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews, and checking out the latest blogs, all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, remember, you can send me a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at radleycheck.radio. We all remember uh, how many of us were treated as second-class citizens by design by our government because we refused the jab. Some of us had to lose our jobs 
lockdowns cost us our businesses. Some of us couldn't work. And then we were spurned and shunned by family and friends who were spurred on by the government, the politicians of all parties and the media that painted us to be terribly misled people who were in danger of killing Nana. And then the media got involved and remember that documentary Fire and Fury where they painted us to be dangerous loons, deluded, misled and violent. I've never watched Fire and Fury but I watched a bit of it last night because our next guest featured in it. Our next guest was featured in it as a violent, misguided, deluded, I would say, bordering on terrorist. And so we're very fortunate to have this morning, Ali Evans. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I imagine you would never in your wildest nightmares think that you could be portrayed in our national media as a violent attacking person? No, no, I'm not. <laughs> Far from it. Yeah. Well, and yet you were. Mm, I was, yeah. And you, you, you were, just... I, I, I watched it and Paula Penfold and Kate Hanna, who was the expert, Paula Penfold, the journalist, and Kate Hanna explained how you were violent attacking and they had footage to prove your violence hmm. oh my goodness well are you a grandmother by any chance i am well, <laughs> where, and where do you come from um taronga we're going to find out what it takes for a grandmother from taronga to become labeled violent Dangerous, misinformed, <laughs> and a terrible person. Yeah. Ali, how was it that you came to be at the protest at Parliament in March last year? Well, I wanted to be part of the convoy, but it just didn't work out, and I didn't want to go on my own, and it was a bit chicken. But when I why, saw... Why, why, why did you want to be in the convoy? Um, because I already knew that something wasn't right. Um, you know, way back early, I thought things didn't add up. And so I'd already been to a couple of the protests down, you know, down in Wellington um, and was horrified to, that the government wasn't listening to us. What, what, I'm sorry to press you on this because no, it's no. So, so interesting to me about how we came to the conclusions that we came to when everyone else came to completely opposite conclusions, like they're in a different movie. So, when did an alarm go off? Were you scared of COVID in the beginning when it was said to be the scary, scary disease? Did you think, oh, wow, there's a disease? It could be like, I don't know, the Black Plague. Um, no, when it first came out, I was really busy um, working. I'd, um, I was 
trained as an enrolled nurse and so I was looking after tetraplegic patients out of the community and so we just got a patient out of the spinal unit and I was flat out just trying to get that team up and running and really hadn't had a chance to notice what was going on and and I remember finally having a day off and going into the supermarket and I think I even had some gloves on and a mask on and then then I thought, hang on a minute, I've worked in isolation. This doesn't compute, you know, you, cross-contamination, as you walk around, you pick something up, you put it in the trolley, um, you've just contaminated yourself. When you did a dressing, you had a sterile environment. You Once you were sterile, you didn't touch any... You know, and as you started thinking, by the time I got to the checkout, I'd had finally had a day off, and I hang on a minute. So it was that was when I first, you know, um, so that was way back in March 2020. Yes. Before that, I really hadn't engaged my brain. <laughs> you know, yes. I was just um, busy, busy. And it was from there, once you start doing some research, and, and then I've got a, a relation in the States, and I'd seen stuff on TV, and I'd contacted her, and um, I said, look, you're near this hospital. Um, she said, nah, it's not overrun. It's it's crazy. It's not. There's things. And she was also waking up to what was going on as well. So from there, and then I just contact, you know, um, then I'd hear from other doctors, and doctors were being silenced, and I thought, hang on. That was a telltale, um, that was a telltale sign, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Why can't you question something? And, and then there was just one source of truth, and, and when so many people were getting silenced, I thought, nah, there's something wrong. Just take me back to this because they make a great joke of this. Oh, you did your own research. <laughs> oh, you're like a PhD in virology, yes, and epidemiology and statistics. Are you? No, I re rely no. on the experts that did that. Yeah, and uh, what we discovered mm. is that there were. Highly credible, highly qualified people. Oh, so many who were echoing mm. these exact concerns. Yeah, and they themselves were being shut down. Oh yes, yeah. I've been in Facebook jail so many times. <laughs> <laughs> and, and well, and that's another thing that I never understood. This I never because I'm not a social media person, and I thought, well, isn't it great? that we have the internet because we can go online and I do do this. Like I don't, I've never posted on Facebook. I tell a lie. I have once I ran a little club for my school, for my kid's school. And I did some Facebooking for that, but I read on Facebook and I read on Twitter and I learned to do telegram through the pandemic. And of course, Google, I'd Google. It never occurred to me, this is my naivety, that that stuff was being throttled. Mm, yeah. That, that the Google algorithms were bent, that Facebook was bent, 
that Twitter was beat. Now this is not even when 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 people were telling me, oh look, you know they they they're doing this and the, I started to think, no no, you know you are you should go and put your tin hat on and sit in the corner. This was true. Oh yes, mm, yeah I know. I just couldn't believe it, um, and I just kept pushing and yeah. <laughs> so um, so you decided that we were being fed a line. Mm. You decided that um, something bigger was going on, I guess. And rather than just live your life quietly in Tauranga, that you would get involved and you went to some early meetings? Mm. Yes. Um, Look, my belief is bad things happen when good people stand by and do nothing. Um, and, and I just needed to do my bit. Um, the, and I was also, you know, if we could, I think they were talking about vaccines, you know, and I remember the second one, the second protest, and I think the government, um, they'd shut, um, the parliament had closed early because they didn't want to hear us. But the day, I think the day that happened, we were in Wellington, and even when in Wellington, I couldn't believe it. We weren't allowed to go to a shop. We weren't allowed to. We were treated like second class. It was just incredible. But I remember being upset because the day we were there, I'd heard that they were going to be able to vaccinate the children. And I was so upset because... Before that, I thought, okay, my kids had already been jabbed, but my grandchildren, they were still going to be okay. Mm. And then to find that, no, they can go after them now. That was just, you know, that took it, that made it more real. Tell me, were you, at that stage, pre-COVID, were you suspicious of vaccines? No, oh, my kids are all jabbed. My kids have been vaccinated. Yeah, they're all grown up and left home. You know, they've got their own kids now. But back then, no, I did as I was told. Yeah. <laughs> I never questioned. Um, I even remember years ago when my youngest was, she was born with some medical issues, not well. It was a really hard time. And I suppose through that, because there were, it took a long time to get diagnosed, I can really identify with the vaccine injured now, the way they're being treated, because I got treated like that way back then. And I remember this lady sending me this letter, um, and, and she was obviously vaccine hesitant. And I even just caught up on my own. I didn't even read it. I don't. Th- well, I think I did read it, but I thought, oh, yeah, that's too much. So even way back then, I dismissed it. I think yes. my my kids even got the, the Gardasil one, and now yes. when I hear that one, I was horrified. That, oh, my gosh. So, no, I was definitely so not. So for you, the COVID experience was a big awakening. Oh, yes, yes, in so many ways. Yes, I even was sort of a bit... Yeah, sitting on the fence, we're not sitting on even with my faith. Um, that's a whole other discussion, but obviously, but that made me wake up as well. <laughs> yeah. So, tell me, um, have you been on protests before? No, 
Never. No, I don't think so. <laughs> no. No. Just law abiding, whatever. And but now I'm so triggered by the police. I just cannot believe that I need to let it go or I need to pray over whatever, but I still get triggered by seeing the police. It's funny you say that. I was walking along from the car park at the Coronet Peak ski field. I should hurry to say that I can't ski, but I, I take my kids up. And I was walking along, and there were three police officers coming towards me. And I personally have had no bad experience individually with a police officer, other than the usual rubbish that people have. And they were walking towards me, and they were kitted up. And I had the same, you know, you have a reaction before you think about it. It's like an instant reaction. You see a rat or, you know, something like that. And you react before you think, oh, it's a rat. Yeah. Sorry, that was a bad analogy. because No, no, but I totally understand. But you yeah. just get an immediate reaction. I got an immediate reaction mm -hmm. from seeing these three police officers. Yeah as if they had been three mongrel mob members walking towards me. Yeah, yeah. I could not believe it mm. that New Zealand police that are sworn to uphold the law and protect me actually, as you say, gave me this shocking reaction as if they were an, out, a, 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 an outlaw gang, mm. gang of outlaws. Mm. And I thought, that's crazy. I know because you know, I thought it's through, you know, the policemen. Mm -hmm. But then I looked at them and I thought, yeah, something's changed in you, policemen yeah. mm -hmm. and woman, and there's something changed in me. Yeah. And we're yeah. in a different place. Yeah. I've lost all trust and respect for them, actually, now. And people say, oh, but a lot didn't go down, but they stood by and did nothing. And that's your saying. Bad happens when good people stand by and do nothing. Yeah. So you couldn't make the convoy because you were on your own. And mm. Nana from Tauranga. I love this <laughs> Nana from Tauranga. But. So how a did very, you get... A very young Nana. <laughs> very young Nana, yeah. <laughs> how did you get to the protest? Well, when I saw the violence, I just had to go down. This was the first and, time the police tried to shift them. Yeah, I was just horrified by that. So and you were watching it online from feeds from Chantel Baker. Yeah, yeah I was. It and became it became compelling watching, didn't it? Oh yes, yeah. It was just. I'm older. I'm older than you, and um, I remember them. Sort of, there were moments when you just had to watch, like man landing on the moon or you know i can't think of other things princess dies wedding princess dies funeral those sorts of things mm. will you tune on to watch for a moment mm. and then can't pull away mm. and those feeds from that village and that protest came like that to me it was oh, compelling. yeah it was yeah so no i just had to go so I um, rounded up a friend to 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 go down, 
she could only go for a couple of days. Um, so we ended up going down for a three whatever days. I actually, this is going to sound crazy, I actually also had to come home because my brother was getting married. Um, but because I wasn't vaccinated, I um, wasn't allowed to be part of the wedding. So, but it was way in Waiuku. So I drove three hours over there just to be part of the photos. So I hid round the back. And then when they went off to the reception, I had to go home balling mice out because <laughs> I couldn't be part of my brother's wedding. But when I got home again, I realised I just missed Wellington. I just, it was such a oh. beautiful, it, 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 there was something about it that, that people, strangers were my friends. We all bonded. We all, there was just a community atmosphere that I had never experienced before. No, same. Same. And I absolutely loved it and wanted to go back again. Um, so I rounded up Val, who you saw in the Fire and Fury, and and I said, come on, let's go. Um, and, and I wanted to be back. Sorry, I wanted to be down there when the mandates were going to be lifted because I just thought, the mandates would be lifted on the first. That's that was the date that advertised the mandates had to be lifted. So I, I said, "Look, we can come home on the second. Um, and so we went back and um, once again um, just joined in, pitched in. We pitched in with the kitchen. Um, we would go around each night praying over the place. It was such a lovely atmosphere um, and we met so many lovely people that um, but absolutely now, just, just just hold that thought yeah um, so you worked you worked at the village oh just there was one day we should have done more I felt a bit guilty there we we helped out in the kitchen one day and even that was an amazing experience and, um, yeah. and at night you went around are oh, you a Christian I am yeah okay I am. And um, so at night you'd go around praying. I concur with you. I was only there, sadly, for a day, and I came back to get my family. And like you, I had to go back. It was the only place I went to be. Outside of personal family things, it was, without a doubt, the greatest experience of my life. Yeah, yeah. Against all the isolation that occurred through COVID, to have that contact with people mm. who agreed with you was so life-affirming, and they felt yes. it too. Yes, yeah. Especially, I think, because we were, we were being separated. We were being segregated. I must admit, I think I was also doing it a bit because when you then people heard that you were one of those, they treated you different. So you tended to withdraw from people yes. that that were possible angry. Like I think I even, but even that's still happening now. I think I mentioned, I probably don't want to be off track, but it was only a month ago, I think, I was still verbally abused because I was wearing a T-shirt saying that, uh, you know, um, I'm in the control group. 
it, it's still happening back, back then. So because we were being treated like that, we were isolated. Um, and so I was being isolated and, and yeah, I withdrew a, a bit from people that, that I knew were following the narrative because you didn't want to get abuse. And then you um, turn up to that village, which is in yeah. this iconic place on Parliament buildings. And, and everybody the, loved it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you're out this amazing place being part of this moment opposing this yes. tyranny. It was a everything just comes together, right? And then to see how everyone was pitching in and making it happen. Where did you sleep? Um, well, the... the um, a couple of different places. Um, the, the first time we were just out, or actually both times, just outside the um, the grounds um, because it was um, full in sight. And so the first time was, yeah, just a, a little grassy pitch, um, but between the footpath and the road. Did you put the, a tent the, up? We did, yes, we did. Um, I should have sent you some photos, actually. Um, the second time, um, we parked in the government area, which is opposite Parliament. There's a, I think yes. it's the law, but... It's but University Law quite, Faculty now, yeah. Yes. So we had one night there, but it was so noisy because it was right next to the road. So I woke up the next morning and says, I can't cope with this. So the next morning um, I went looking for a place and I come across this lovely Mary lady up at the church um, grounds and she said, well, look, there's an empty tent here. So um, she said, come in, you know, you're welcome. So we moved all our stuff up there and um, we actually left our other tent down and so we joked that, oh, well, um, we'll have our batch down there and our home... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's what that was. And do you and, do you yeah. camp like that often or was that again a new experience to you? That was a new no, I prefer a few more comforts. <laughs> so um yeah, did that you was feel did you did you feel safe at night closing your eyes in a tent? Oh always. Always they were just that was the thing. The whole time they had security. There was they would always um no violence. It was it was security. It was the safest place to 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 be. Um, yeah, um, but yeah, I do know that there were people that were infiltrated later on, um, and I had I can tell you a story about that with the police coming and sneaking in. But um, I'd love yeah, to hear it more. was safe. So I've got you there. I've got you pitched. I can picture it. Yeah. Then what happened? Um, so um, where we at? Um, so, yeah, we'd moved up and up to, to the church, and so we just joined in on, on any speeches or um, I think um, we did a bit of a walk along the, the um, around Wellington sometimes and helped out when we could. Um, we tried, there was church services up in the another area i'm not sure what that building used to be um and we tried to join in on that um and yeah it was there was one time that we had 
um, there was supposed to be a, a meeting organised for singing the national anthem, and so we joined in on that. That was that was lovely. Um, I was trying to organise another bigger one the next day, but it was hard to get people together and organised. Um, but yeah, no, it was good. And then it wasn't. Um, yes, that was the thing. There was an, an announcement made um, the night before, and we, whether I didn't hear it properly, but I sort of took that something they they heard something was happening, um, and didn't really know what. But within the next 24, 48 hours. Um, Val and I sort of thought, oh, we're going to miss it. We've got to go home tomorrow. <laughs> so we, never realising that it, we were going to wake up to a war zone the next morning. Um, actually, I should have seen, I've got a bit of a video that Val took of what it was like. And, but it was just horrific. Um, helicopters above, screaming, yelling, um, I, Val and I both, well, I woke up first because to all of the noise and woke up Val and I sort of, something's happening, something's, you know, and I put my coat on. I was still in my pyjamas. I had, we had yoga pants and, and that for um, pyjamas and, you know, I put my shoes on and thought, well, I'll go to the loo and Val was sensible and got dressed. <laughs> <laughs> um, but by the time I got back, the police were already coming down and they were screaming and yelling and, and next thing it was, get in the gate, get in the gate. Everybody was panicking and get in the gate, get in the gate. And, you know, to try and get safe because the police were just barging their way down. Um, and what was get so in the gate in the gate and then I what couldn't was, get back to most stuff. And just, just um, explain to me, explain to me what get in the gate meant. Inside the the grounds to to stay protected because you know we were um, inside Parliament grounds. Yes, yes. Okay. Because and, and, we were and, camped, and my my it. tent was on the the church grounds on on, and the police were coming down Hill Street. I later found out they were coming in down from all directions. So, um, and some of the people had put up, um, holding up some, holding up some big um, um, wooden sort of barricade shields to protect them, and the police were just coming down, sort of bashing and pushing them about, and so the only safe place was inside the the, the parliament grounds, where you know, away from the police. Um, so, yeah, that's where everybody jumped inside the gate. Um, yeah, and then then we were, oh, um, stood around for a while, I think, in shock. Um, I was still quite upset and the police were still filing in at the stage and, and I had gone to tell the police, this is not on. This is you can't do this. Get out, you know, sort of type thing. So there's 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 a video of me telling the policeman off. <laughs> um, and is that is that uh, the one? Is that the one that's in Fire and Fury? No, no. I'll okay. send it to you. It's um, the one in Fire and Fury. Is is just 
Um, later on, I'm not sure at what point in the morning is the 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 reporters. There was a photographer. I come across a group of people that was showing the photographer away. That's all he was doing. That everyone was showing him away because they just tell lies. And so I joined in, and then all I'm doing is saying, leave. I'm pointing, leave, leave. You need to leave. And so I struggled to see how that can be portrayed as being violent. Well, they did a good um, job on that, didn't they? Because <laughs> They did. Uh, you, you, you were in the parliament grounds. The journalists had joined the group to film them and whatever, and you were saying, I can't leave. Leave, get just out. leave. That's leave all I out. said. Yeah. Leave. And that was filmed, and we'll come back to that. And mm. that's in the context of the police. This is the day the police attacked and removed the village. Mm, yes. Yeah. But the police were there be even beforehand. I'll come, to that. I'll come to that. Hold yeah. that thought. I yeah. just want to get this bit first. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, no. So we've got plenty of time. Mm -hmm. So. You were aware that the village was one thing, this beautiful, wonderful thing. You'd see the news or read the newspaper or listen to the radio, and it was painted the complete opposite. Oh, yes, yes. Now, I saw that firsthand several times, actually. Give um, me an example. Right, okay. So one of the protests, now I'm not, sure which protest, one of the ones where we walked from Civic Square to uh, Parliament. On that one, um, on the way home, we got caught in a traffic jam because heartbreaking, but there was a, a massive accident and, and some um, people got um, killed. Um, tragic. Um, so we were caught in this traffic jam that was several hours and most of the people went back to to uh, a pub. Um, sorry, I'm not familiar with North Island towns. Um, originally I'm from Invercargill. So, um, so, but anyway, so we all piled into to this pub and sitting waiting for the road to clear. And next thing the news came on and so you can imagine it was quite an incredible atmosphere, but the, the news came on and what they were saying in the news to what all of these people had just experienced was um, totally, totally different. It was just, yeah. So that What were was they saying? A, what was they saying that was different? Oh, just the amount of people um, that were there was, was um, yeah, not accurate and... Just the way they twisted things to what we were wanting and and how we were supposedly violent towards um, people standing on the side of the road, whereas they were often violent, uh, abusing us, you know, heckling us, whereas we were just peacefully walking down the main street. Mm. So... Um, yeah, I, I just couldn't believe that one. Um, yeah, just just the way they and yeah, you saw they're always twisting the. And the, of course, uh, by this time, we were well aware mm. that the entire apparatus of what I call the legacy media was given over 
and trumpeting the need for everyone to get jabbed, that yes. lockdowns were the greatest thing, that yes. St. Jacinda had saved all these lives, and anyone, anyone who questioned mm. it mm. was a conspiracy theorist, an idiot, a dangerous loon, or a Nazi, or all yeah. of the above. We were yeah. denigrated. Oh, totally. Yeah. So we had, we came out of that surprisingly with a very low opinion of journalists and journalism. Yes. Yeah. So mm -hmm. that's that's the background, and so when these this photographer was in the group taking pictures, mm. he said, "Get out." Leave. I told him to leave. I didn't want him to be spreading lies about about us. I was defending my tribe, um, but even the, the like the day before, I, oh, was it no the week before? I think we'd just arrived, and they put in these toilets, which was which was amazing. Well, on the news, it said that that, that it was um, sewage was going down the street or whatever, and just some of the stuff was. So I was protect, I was protecting my tribe. Yes, it was very hurtful. When it was done, yes. everything was done so well, and then you were painted as yeah. kids, kids being and playing in sewage and yes. all the rest of it. Now, you said that you saw some things of the police infiltrating. Yes, I oh, know that was so. The, I think it was the night before, or a couple of nights before. Um, I remember um, going to charge my phone. They had this great big. Oh, trestle table and, and you could just go and plug in your phone. There would be a hundred other phones there as well. It was quite a, it was quite amazing. And once again, you could just plug it in and go off and leave it and, and it would still be there. Um, but next to it was this coffee station and then further on was the, the food court. So anyway, I was standing waiting for a coffee and there was this guy next to me and I just picked up these bad vibes from him and, and he just... He just didn't fit, and and I sort of looked at him a couple of times. Um, sort of a quite a young guy. He almost looked too clean for a start. Because, um, and um, so he got served, and then I said to, I made a comment to the guy behind the, the coffee thing, and I said, "What was that all about?" And he said, "He's a cop," and I really. How, would, how do you know that? He's a cop. So I then went and sat down and, you know, had him a coffee. And the guy from behind the counter, he'd come out and um, he said, uh, I said, how can you tell? And he said, come with me. And he, so we went over to this guy who was, you know, 100 yards away or whatever. And, and, and he, he, he said, you're a cop, aren't you? The guy was so overreactive. Um, it was just, you know, it was laughable. You know, and I and I just sort of, well, if if somebody else had asked me if you were a cop, I'd look at you and I wouldn't have reacted like that. I would what? what? He reacted you know? like you'd expect a cop to react if he'd been caught out. Yes. He he was a young guy, but um, and so I got to talking and, and I said to, you know, we left that guy because he sort of took off and um, I said, to, and he said, oh, there's another one over there. And I said, you're kidding me. 
So I then went and spoke to the security and I said, look, I've just been told there's a couple of cops in here and he says, yeah, they're, they're coming in all of the time. Um, so I think they were just checking things out and counting up numbers or whatever, I don't know. But I was shocked, yeah. Plus, and wow. it's, it's our naivety because, of course, they you would do that, wouldn't you? You'd infiltrate the movement with yeah. officers yeah. to find out what you're up against. It was a very yep. sophisticated police operation that day. Oh, definitely, yes. And but the clear, next day, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So up until that point, over the whole over the whole experience of the protest, was that your some experience with journalists reading it, watching it, hearing it, and then telling that photographer to leave? Um, yes. Yes. Um, so yeah, the, when I saw that journalist, I can't remember if, the, if that was sorry the photographer. I can't remember if that was before or after the interview with Paula. When I first met um, Paula, I actually didn't see her first. I saw Val. Val and I had been separated. I was holding the line for a, I don't know how long it was, in a couple of an hour, a couple of hours. Um, but once you got buried in the line, and you know I'm not a big person, um, it, you know I started to get a bit claustrophobic, and you know I remember this guy turning back and looking at me and said, "Are you okay?" And I remember being quite emotional and thinking, "I'm standing on the right side of history. That's all that matters." And yeah, I'm okay, but I think. You know, um, as as the line deepened, you got closer and closer to, to the the people, uh, the police, and you got sort of buried. Um, and they were all towering above me, and and in the end, I thought, oh, I can't, I've got to get out. Um, so I did. So I went looking for Val, and she must have not long done the interview because she was talking to. Paula and whatever. So, but I saw Val first, and I was wow! Oh, finally, I found you. All excited, and then oh, what's the cameras? What's going on? Um, so yeah, I saw that, and it was from there Paula asked to do an interview. And so this is now just for listeners. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking to Ali Evans. A nana from Tauranga, made famous by the Fire and Fury documentary that painted her to be a, a probably a lovely lady who's been seriously misled by doing her own research by um, terrible people and, as a consequence, had become violent. And they proved her violence by showing a clip, uh, which we'll get to. So at this stage... Uh, and Paula Penfold is the reporter, very senior reporter, who's did that documentary. So you saw Paula, she had a camera, and mm. you realised that she had, once you got over the joy of seeing your friend Val, you realised that Val had been interviewed by Paula, and then what happened? Um, Paula wanted to do an interview with me, and I originally told her, no, you're mainstream media, no, not doing it. Um, and she kept asking and saying, look, we want to hear your side of the story. Um, so 
and I Val had already done an interview, and I thought, oh, okay, well, if you if if you want to hear why we're here, and of course that was for the vaccine injured and the wanted the mandates lifted, etc., but mainly the vaccine injured, um, and. So I did the interview, and, and actually, I don't, don't remember, I was exactly word for word, but I do remember her asking me, um, now some people here want Jacinda Hung. Are you one of those ones? Jeepers. And I remember telling her, no, um, I want anybody to be held accountable for, for I think there's people on, on both sides, whoever's done wrong needs to be held accountable um but you know i wasn't wanting but so i actually remember telling her no to that um and i can't remember what other things she asked um so yeah and then of course we got separated i think she watched us um we were stuck on the side of the fence looking at our gear because our, our gear was camped uh, on parked on the other side of Hill Street by the church and the police wouldn't let us get our stuff. Um, so I took a video of watching the police um, trash our stuff. It was quite emotional. Um, and eventually gave up on that and... and um, yeah, I think, I don't know what we did after that. We sort of wandered around in shock, I think. Um, so you did this uh, interview with Paula Penfold. Yeah. And, and did that air ahead of the documentary or did it not appear? No, no, nothing. Nothing appeared until um, documentary the documentary. Yeah, no, we didn't see, didn't see any of that. Um, you can tell the difference because there, I hadn't done the hair, um, so there's two different clips. There's one, I hadn't, and I was in the coat and jammies, um, um, yeah, <laughs> and the other one I actually, yeah. So there, there, you can see in the video there's there's two different time frames, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. So then you um, walk around in shock, having lost all your gear to the police, and... Mm. You head home. Um, the, we stayed there all that day. Um, I think at one stage, I remember sitting on a park bench, um, looking up the parliament from one ear, area, seeing the police literally beating up people in another area, and then looking over and seeing the police just loading everything, all our gear into the truck, and just... I couldn't comprehend it all and I just remember sitting there bawling my eyes out and actually that was where poor, um, Chantelle came along and there's a video of me somewhere with me bawling my eyes out and I think Val joined me at that stage. We were just bawling our eyes out because we just couldn't comprehend what was happening um, and then the police moved forward closer and at some point and um, yeah. Um, I think we clambered over some fence, um, and and then I tried to help people that were that were standing on the front line. They got pepper sprayed and milk. There was one guy; he'd been pulled out of a tree or something. So he um, 
I think I've tried going and finding a medic um, for for that. Um, yeah, and and of course you were uh, a trained nurse originally, so you knew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, it's a long time since I've worked in in a hospital. I never worked in an ER or anything like that. We were just yeah, so a whole nother level. But you know, I just could see people being hurt. And, and in shock and so most of us wandered around in, in a daze trying to but the police were slowly closing in and, and you know so we were slowly moving back and um, and then I think I tried to help um, the people were packing up at, you know trying to retrieve stuff but it, it was chaos it was absolute chaos and we were still there when the fires um, got lit, and that's another one I reckon that that was a plant. Um, well, you don't bring your own gear. Oh yeah, no. But I've seen a video where um, the, the people were caught um, masked up. No, no protesters wore masks. We just no. didn't wear them. And there was a guy there where he had a kerosene, you know, a petrol can. And, and he was all covered up, and he went into a tent, and then soon after it was it was a blaze. Well, come on, um, but that all got labelled, you know, conspiracy and all of that. But no, things like that. Um, it was just crazy. And and, and towards the end, yeah, there, I, I did see people that were being violent. But I think the police incited violence. But I think there were people that were planted in there to look violent so that they could then um, say, oh, you see there are violence in there. Whereas all of the people, the whole time, before and after, even on the day, I've got a video where there's a loudspeaker and I know the guy, He was his name is Guy actually, and he was no violence, no violence. You know, hold your line, hold the line, no violence the whole time, and that's what we all did. So anybody that want, did try to be violent were told off. Um, but when when the police are eye-gouging and pepper-spraying and beating you up, um, you've got to defend yourself. So, you know, I, I don't know. Um, so by the end of the day, we... Um, Oh, about five o'clock or something, we, we, my car was parked in a car park nearby. So I went back to the car and then I had car trouble and I got oh, the key broke in the ignition and oh, and we thought, oh, it's too late to go home. We couldn't, you know, go back to Taronga. So we found a, a hotel that would take us <laughs> because we were not vaccinated um, and, and we stayed the night um, and, and then left the next day. So, oh, but then the next day we went back just to see the place and once again the police were still aggressive um, and, yeah, we just, yeah, and then went home. So, yeah, incredible. I will never forget that day. No. No. And you were there. Yeah, I was. Proud I'm on the right side of history, though, but shocked that, that this is that what we've come to. 
And then yeah. you get home and on Facebook, Paula Penfold reaches out to you. And I've yes. seen these, I have seen these messengers. Yes. She couldn't be sweeter to you. Oh, I know. Yeah, asking how we were, how I was, and did I get home safe? Um, did you make it back to the bay? Um, yeah, glad you both got back safely. I can imagine you must be completely exhausted. Make sure to take it easy. Um, and then I said, will do, thanks. Um, hi, Ellie, how are you doing now? Just checking in with people we met at the protest to see how you're feeling about everything now. We'd like to, really like to come to the Bay to do a follow-up chat with you and ask about how you felt, about what you felt the protest achieved and whether your concerns remain. I'd love to come and um, do that next week if possible. You're on Rally Check Radio. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to hear what happened next following these, oh, nice texts. How are you, Ali? Feeling good? Did you get home safe? Oh, I'd like to come and talk to you. That's next. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing, and the app is now live. You can visit the app stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything. From listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews, and checking out the latest blogs, all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Rally Check Radio. We're talking to Ali Evans, uh, the Nana that went to the protest, featured in the documentary Fire and Fury. And she's got the nice text. We're going to hear how the interview went. Stay tuned. Knowing what comes next, that's a level of duplicity that you can't quite believe. Mm. Yeah. Because the whole thing, and I, I, I'm running ahead for listeners, but just to give it context, she had one purpose in interviewing you was to put yeah. you in the documentary and mm. make you a perpetrator of violence. And this concern for you which comes across as humane and caring is entirely a device to have you drop your guard yeah as a citizen unaware of how journalists operate drop your guard and out her into your home to film you where once she gets the camera running, she can put extreme allegations to you and get your horrified response. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So when you look at those messages messages with the benefit of hindsight, what do you think of those messages? Um. <laughs> I couldn't believe that I could be so naive to believe that she really, um, yeah, that she really wasn't, I don't know, I just just couldn't believe that. 
I really did believe that she was going to at least try and put our side. Um, but then I was hesitant, and I, I think I even said, um, yeah, because I'm, I'm really not used to being in the limelight. I, I prefer to, you know, I said, I said to her, hi, Paula, I'll have a talk with Val, but the ones you really deserve an interview are the vaccine injured. So, and I even told her they are meeting today in Wellington and sent her the link to that. I said, they're the ones that you need to go and see. So at that stage, I think I was still humming and harring. And I think at one stage I'd said to her, um, no, look, you really need to be interviewing them, not me. Um, so, and it was, I'd been told that she'd done an interview. Um, she'd done a documentary about the Gardasil and there it was supposedly on the the vaccine injured side. So I thought, okay, I've got to do this because, you know, she may, that stage I still thought she was perhaps going to do both sides. Um, but, yeah, I do hope you go to meet them. The vaccine injured are the, the, one of the many reasons we went down to Wellington. So, and then once again, I, when I'm looking back, I realised that she didn't really acknowledge those, you know, thanks, Ellie, that's that's the kind of, oh, not here, that's the kind of thing I'm keen to hear. What worry, What most worries you? Let me know when you've had a chat to uh, to Val and hopefully we can come up with a plan to, to come and visit. So there, she's not saying no. She's, yeah, so... She's just, yeah, playing a game. Playing a game. So you agreed to the interview. Did she come to your house? Um, I met at Val's place. So, we, yeah, we both, and, I went to Val's. Yeah. And so and she, she's got a cameraman in tow? Yes. And even even while they were setting up the camera, we, Louisa and uh, Paula, we all sat down and had a coffee. Um, nice as pie, friendly, just. So you had a cup of coffee with Louisa, which is Louisa Cleave and Paula Penfold at Val's house. Yes, yes. And it was all friendly as pie? Oh, it was, yes. And, um, and what was Louisa Cleave's role there? Um, I think she was labelled herself the producer. Um, so and was there a camera person there as well? Yes, yes. Yeah, they were busy. Yeah, they were busy setting up. There might have been two cameramen. I, I can't remember. Okay. Oh no, could, oh, yeah, I'm not sure. Two or one. And while you were sitting there drinking your beverages, what did you discuss? Do you recall? Um, basically more information. <laughs> we were still, you know, which they would label misinformation. Um, we were still just. Yeah, same old, um, trying to, yeah, pleasant trees. Um, we even, I think we even, I, Val even gave her more information to use, I think, yeah. And, and, and so they feigned an interest in this information? Yes, yes, very friendly, very friendly. 
So it wasn't until halfway through the interview, because, you know, you could expect the answer to be very formal and, you know, asking questions. So, you know, once the camera's on, it's all, you know. So I could understand that. But it was when they then pull out an iPad and, and in it I'm supposedly being very violent because I'm telling a reporter to leave um, there was a group of reporters, it wasn't me on my own, I'm sorry, a group of people. Um, and so, and from that, she then, are you always this violent? And she kept asking me for, oh, I don't know how many times, but it was several, um, are you always this violent? Um, and kept re-asking, implying that I was violent. There was somebody in it Um um, saying somebody should be hung. I'm not sure who it was. But um, I said, well, I didn't hear that. And no, I wasn't violent. You were, you were totally, in the interview in the documentary, you were yeah, sorry? totally, in the interview on the documentary that the bit they played, you were totally rattled by this question. Oh, yes, yeah. Well, because... I was quite surprised. I don't actually even really remember me joining that group. We were—I was helping wherever I could, um, and it so, was that great line about when did you stop beating your wife, or have you stopped beating your wife? I mean, it was so perplexing to you when they say. Are you always this violent? Because you're confused because you think I've never been violent, right? No, no. I, I just but that wasn't violent. We no. just no no, I agree. You're you're telling yeah. me you're asking these people to leave. Yes, because I felt they were spreading lies and I needed to protect my tribe. Um and so yeah. But she kept re asking and and so in the end I told her if you come into my home spreading lies i'll tell you to leave that's not violent no and she didn't ask again after that so i noticed they didn't put that one that bit in the video though so, so then uh, they packed all their gear up well that was the thing that then i can't remember what was next but anything else we also, she wanted to know where we got our information from. I can't remember at what point that was that all was asked. And anything that I did mention, you know, Peter Kennedy, Peter McCulloch, uh, Matt Sheldon, all of those were dismissed. I mentioned there was a recent court case that was dismissed. Um, any information, they just labelled us. Um and then it, it finished soon after, and I thought, hang on, we haven't talked about the vaccine injured. But it was all happening and it was all over, and, and I was re really just upset. Um, so I'll have a drink now. Oh. Mm. Just upset that they could do that to us and to the vaccine injured. It was and, of course... They had been invited into Valerie's home for a specific purpose. 
which was to discuss the vaccine injured. And instead, they come across as aggressive and accusing you of being a violent person. Um, yeah, from there, I just couldn't believe that how they had twisted. They wanted to, supposedly wanted to hear what we had to say, and yet next thing they were accusing me of being violent. I, I just couldn't get my head around it. Um, and, yeah, and then, you know, the the interview finished and... Um, and I was, hang on a minute, you haven't talked about the vaccine injured. Um, I, I just, yeah, and I felt upset because I felt like I'd let my tribe down. Um, was it a bit awkward while that, were they still, did they keep up the facade of being polite and caring as they packed up or did it just become? They did with Val, but with me, there was, yeah, no, because I just looked at them and, yeah, I just, <laughs> yeah. So I think they, they knew. They knew what you thought of them and they said, yeah. okay. Mm. But yeah. they had got what they'd come for. Yeah, they had, yes. And what, they in had. your view, in hindsight, had they come for? Um, to paint me in a bad light, to... To yeah, they had. I thought they'd come to show our side. Uh, I presume as well as their side, but balanced. But they had just come to paint us in a bad light to use. Um, and I think they must have thought it was Christmas when they had this found that they had a clip of me on the video as well as the interview. Um, you know. I bet they thought they had all their Christmases uh, come at once with the clip in the interview. Of course, none of it was especially damning, but mm. you felt that they had got you in a gotcha moment. Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, I was in shock um, because realising that I'd been stitched up and and just upset, realising, hang on, we hadn't talked about the vaccine injured. Um, yeah, so. And they just, um, Louisa, Paula Penfold, the two cameramen, they just packed up their things and said goodbye? Um, yes, they were a bit more friendly to Val, um, but, um, yeah, I think because I was just staring at them thinking, how could you? How do you? Um, yeah, and and whether they were feeling guilty because they knew they'd lied to me or, or to us or whatever, I don't know. But I did notice the difference in their body language and my body language between um, from the start to the finish and more so with me compared to Val. Um, so aware that was partly because of my, yeah, the way I was feeling. I just was staring at them. How could you do this? Did they you know, accuse Val, Had they accused Val of being violent? 
No. No, well, that's a big difference, right? Yes. So I think that was the thing. And and, and I must admit, I look at you, I look at you, and I can't imagine <laughs> coming to any conclusion. And I can't imagine how you meet, let's say, angry even. You were angry on that day. The whole village was being ripped aside. An angry woman saying, leave, leave. Yeah. Go or whatever. That's not violent. You never touched anyone. You never threatened no. anyone. You just told them to leave. That's not violent. No. And that's and I told them that's not violent. They had um, no evidence of you being violent? No. No. So I, I'm now. Certainly upset. Yeah. But not oh, violent. God. I'd be upset. It's a bit like um, the camera's rolling, the lights are on you. And they say, well, <clears throat> Rodney, you don't strike me as a person who'd torture cats. And you just get angry, right? Because, like, yeah. what are you talking about? Yeah. But they've got you. Mm. Anyway, yeah. mm. what did anything happen after that? Did you hear from them again? No, no, not, um, not for ages. We got a bit of a warning um, just before that was about to be released. I had tried to contact a few people um, just to let them know that this is coming and I, I don't think it's going to play well because we got stitched up. Um, and, um, yeah, they basically said, well, look, there's nothing we can do. We don't know what we're dealing with. Wait till it comes out. Um, so we got a warning and then the minute we got a warning, I contacted um, you know, Chantel and Leighton and, and um That's Chantel Baker, her dad, yeah. her dad Leighton. Yeah. To tell them, yeah. yeah. Just to warn them. Um yeah. and I think um Hannah from Cunnispin and yeah. Sue Gray. Um yeah. and so we were in when that came out, oh, I was just, oh, my gosh, couldn't believe it. And But then I, when I realised how much they attacked everyone else, I thought, well, you know, what am I complaining about? Um, you know, and, and I, I sort of joked that, well, you know, we're so far in, most people would have gone to sleep. So Yeah, you are a long way in. I, yes. had, to, I had to go forward, not because I... I'd fall asleep, but because it was just so, oh. because I'd been to the village, because I am an anti-lockdowner, anti-mandator, mm. so I'm totally outside their worldview. Yeah, I couldn't sit through it because it was yeah. just unadulterated bilge. Oh yes, yes. It's so, interesting. Yeah. It's interesting because from what I saw of it. It's this thesis about you and indeed the uh, protest. It was all about misinformation. Mm. Yes. That you were you were a lovely person, sort of thing, as I understood it. Is this a fair summary of what they portrayed? But you had done your own research, gone online, yes. and started following. Oh my goodness, counter spin. Yes. Voices for freedom. 
Yeah, I've been misled uh, and, yeah. Misled. And then mm-hmm. they had you, for the evidence of your violence, they yes. had this clip they played over and over, which they showed you. I guarantee you'd forgotten about that incident even, probably. I didn't actually know that, because that, it was a blur. Just so a I, moment. And yes. so you're saying, leave, leave to this journalist. Yes. That became the smoking gun of their violence, which they yeah. showed over and over again for emphasis. And then they commented on your violence and the violence of the protest. Mm. Then they had you looking rattled like a possum caught in the headlights. Yes. (laughs) And Paula asking, oh, but, you know, are you a violent person? What led you to this violence? And you go, oh, I don't know about violence. And, of course, they caught you in that moment. Yeah. Looking mm. exactly like a person who was a Mooney or programmed. Yes. To be yes. But yes, but for them to keep asking me, um, why am I so violent and keep implying that, I think it was because I was not giving her the answer no. um, that she wanted. And and then once I told her, you know, that comment um at the end, if you come into my home spreading lies, I'll tell you to leave. Um, she didn't ask again. So, yeah, but when you see that video clip that actually we haven't talked about yet, it shows her agenda. It exposes, because she's quite, I cannot believe how open and honest she tells us um, their agenda and how they would just... I'm sorry, what clip is this? What, what clip are we talking about, Ali? Um, the the link, the big hearing. She did an interview with um, two journalists, Big Hearing News or something. Um, I sent her the the link, and in okay. it, she talks quite at length about um, several people: Sean Plunkett um, and Chantel and various other people, but quite a bit about me and how misled I was and um and um but she was using to compare me to this other guy that there was this other guy that used to be a, a conspiracy theorist and I really wonder if he was I wonder if either he was just put in there but anyway that's beside the point so that, that this person had seen the light but obviously I had gone down a rabbit hole and it was too far down and it was all Chantel Baker's fault and, and counterspins. So that's the, the narrative they were yes. trying you to were make. the innocent, lovely. Yes. The story was written before the interview. Yes, yes. So. And what yep. they needed you yeah. to do was to act your part. Yes, definitely, and to have somebody that here we can point at. So, yeah, and then in the interview she did with those two journalists, she admits, yes, there is a story to be helped, um, to be told, um, but not now. And I sort of feel like, why not now? Why couldn't she say um, then? You know, that was a year ago. So... Um, you know, and now now they're sort of, um, oh, well, it's all in the past now. Let's let it go. Well, you can't change what you don't acknowledge. So, You've got great sayings. <laughs> can't change what you don't acknowledge. 
Well, I, how do we know it's not going to happen again if they if we don't, you know? I find it. I'm pretty hard bitten because journalists have. I'm. I was a politician, and so journalists tricked and did me over every which way <clears throat> by Sunday. Mm. And <clears throat> I used journalists to, you know, for political reasons, but never ever have citizens been treated by journalists so despicably. Wow. Because the journalists weren't reporting the news. Mm. They weren't going out and recording differing points of view and putting them together to explain their dispute. They went out with the government's official line. Yes. Lockdown saved lives. Vaccine safe and effective allows us to escape lockdown. Oh, look, kooky people. They had a problem because these kooky people were very reasonable people. Yeah. So they had to explain that these very reasonable people have been misinformed and misled by dark forces yeah. on their own grift, like Chantal Baker and Counterspin. Yeah. Is that that's the story, right? To explain it all. Yes, definitely. What yes. what would you say to Paula Penfold now if you had the opportunity? Because she will listen to this. Oh, will she? Um, why couldn't you have at least researched um, into the vaccine injured? At least you promised to hear our side or speak, you know, uh, what we wanted to. You, she could have at least researched. Um, the whole reason I did that interview was because. I had been advised, well, she appeared with the, the Gardasil one she did, that, you know, she may give it um, an unbiased, a balanced interview. So clearly she had it an agenda. Um, and how can she sleep at night? Because a year on, you would have seen the statistics. Mm. You know? Well, it's the government what- itself now accepts that people died from the vaccine. Yeah. They accept that some people were injured. All we're arguing about are the numbers and the extent. Mm. But no journalist, to my knowledge, has done a story on even those that the government acknowledges happened. Yeah. No. So they won't. And if someone has been injured and someone has died, how can you mandate and make everyone take it, particularly kids? Exactly. And that's why I was, if we could have got the vaccine injured herd, it would have made such a difference. Um, and just to see those videos of of Casey and, so you know, I met a guy here in Taronga who'd had a, um, heart issues. Um, Oh, there's so many. There's another lady. I've forgotten the name. Lovely lady. There's so many people. And I just, how do they cope? How do they um, cope? Yeah. That's Tell just, me, how often have you watched the clip of you and 
Paula Penfold? Have you watched it once and said never again, or have you watched it <laughs> several times? Um, I watched it probably a couple of times to just to digest it to start when it first came out. After that, I didn't watch it again. Mm. I didn't want to watch it. Um, I, and I was more angry at the interview that she did with those journalists. I'm sure she did several more because in it she admitted that she had an agenda and all that, and this isn't the story, you know. And, and I thought that's proof of what, they were doing. Mm. What so, would you say to Kate Hanna, who was com commenting in the show about you, that you uh, had been um, gone misled? I just wonder how they all sleep at night because they've got to know something doesn't add up. How that's do the funny sleep? thing, isn't it? That yeah. is the funny thing. They've got to know. There's no, even if you're trying to bury your head in the sand or you're, you've got to know, hang on, you know, and, and you could understand, you know, various people took a while to cotton on from 2020 um, and obviously some still haven't. Um, but you've got to think, hang on, something's not right. There's an incredible degree of cognitive dissonance in the sense yes. that it's too enormous to admit that they're wrong. But if you're a journalist, that's right. You've got you have to. no yeah. dog in the race because you're sitting supposedly outside of the argument, mm. reporting upon it, mm. not taking a side, and you'd have to say, well. I better go and talk to some of these families and some yes. of these injured. Yes. They yeah. no. They're willfully blind. Yes. The way that they were treated. And they, 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 may, they may be able to interview them from a sceptical point of view and say, look, coincidence, whatever. But you'd still do it. You'd yes. still examine the other side. And, of course, I'm – I'm always, and I'm sure you are too, wondering if you're wrong, particularly when you're in the minority and being abused. You think, oh, I could yeah. be wrong about this. Yeah. And so you try and understand their argument. Yes, they are definitely. Yeah. I, I try, I try my best and I try and see it from their perspective, but they mm -hmm. won't do the courtesy or the professional obligation of just looking at the other side. Oh, definitely. Yeah, at and the start, yeah, I did wonder. But there was just too many things. Yes. And yeah. when they came to see you, it wasn't to get your side. It was to demolish you with trickery. Yes. In, in a documentary. Yeah. Well, Ali, you have helped us this morning enormously because – You've taken us through why why you were at the protest, how you said what you said, demonstrated to us that you're not a violent person, clearly, and yet that's how you were portrayed mm. in the national media 
for a documentary that's up for some award. Oh, now that's the bit that really, (laughs) sorry, that is the bit that makes me really cross. When she's getting an award for what they've done, and you think of how many people are suffering, and she's getting an award. Mm. Sorry, that one just really, (laughs) I struggle with that one. Ellie, we thank you for your time. We Mm. thank you for your support for the vaccine injured. We thank you for going to the protest and standing up for each and every one of us and for children and our children's children because this will resonate down through history for sure. And we appreciate you taking us through that experience of being literally stitched up by award-winning TV journalist who Mm. had the story before she met you yeah, and came to Val's house with her cameras, Mm. inviting herself there and your generosity and not running anything that you said or wanted to say other than your response to Mm. her question, what is it? Are you violent? Are yeah. you usually violent? What makes mm. you violent? Yeah. Terrible stuff. That was Ali Evans. Wonderful, wonderful woman. Beautiful woman, actually. <laughs> Nana from Tauranga, standing up yeah. for all of us. And to think that's journalists. This isn't some journalist fresh out of school. This yeah. is a very senior, senior journalist who supposedly sets the standard. Mm. So there you have it, the standard in New Zealand for journalism. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Send us a text, 2057. Email me at inbox at rallycheck.radio. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. Thank you for bearing, was it, testimony mm. to Ali's experience. Oh. Mm. Mm. Thank you. And thank you, RCR, for for what you're doing. It's nice to actually have somebody speaking the truth out in that. Yeah, thank you. And we won't edit you. (laughs) That is so great. Yeah, thank you for that one. (laughs) Right now, free speech is under heavy attack in New Zealand, with the government constantly devising new ways to enforce censorship. To revive Honest Media and support RCR, join our Foundation Membership Club today. To learn more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, send me a text, 2057, email me, inbox at realitycheck.radio. There's nothing harder to get to than the truth. It just isn't easy. It's not pure, not simple. And the best way we've got to getting to the truth about the world is through science. Not science of someone in a white coat coming on TV and telling you what to do and what to think. That's uh, propaganda. But science being tested against the real world, the objective world, to see what's true in our understanding about the world, to better understand the world, to figure out how things work. 
not to tell people what to do, but to understand. And, of course, the way science works is that we have theories about how we think the Earth might go around the sun, how light might travel across the universe, what time is, what makes plants grow, how, oh, here's a good one, how the messages pass from our brain to our fingers through the nerve cells. Is it electrical? Is it chemical? Is it a bit of both? And all these things are science. And we have worked very hard to understand it. And that means putting up a theory about how you think it works and testing that theory against reality, testing it harshly, critically, and often find finding it comes up short. And when we do science, typically we're not just testing a theory against the objective world, but we're testing competing theories to find out which theory better describes what is going on. And one will survive a critical test and the other won't. And so we then say we have a better theory. And it's not that we say we've got the truth, because the one thing we know is that as our knowledge grows, in a funny way, the less we know and well-established theories get turned over or get adjusted. And the wonderful example, of course, is Einstein's general theory overturning, not overturning, but extending Newtonian classical mechanics, which works in a specific case here on Earth, but not everywhere, as Einstein showed. And then that wonderful example of Einstein saying, well, if my theory's right, light from that distant star should bend around the sun by this amount when there is a solar eclipse. And sure enough, that's what happened. And Einstein said, if it doesn't happen, nah, I'm wrong. You can forget about my theory. And in 1919, there was an expedition by Eddington, and they discovered that, uh, indeed, Einstein's prediction, bold prediction, survived the critical test. So science is hard. That's knowledge about the objective world. It seems to me when it comes to politics and people, it's so much more difficult to understand what happened what the truth was. And the best way we've come up with, and it's not foolproof by any means, is a trial by jury, by our peers, where someone gets charged with, say, a murder, and we want to find out, did this fellow do it? And we set a test, and we say, beyond reasonable doubt, did this person do it? So it's not a guarantee, and we know the court system got it wrong many, many times, an amazing number of times. I believe it's got it wrong for people that are now currently in our jails. So it's not fallible. But we go about it in a particular way, and that is you put up the prosecution, and they put their case and have to make all the information available to the defence, whose job it is, is not to 
what's the word, um, be even-handed, their job is to put the very, very best case they can that the person charged is not guilty. And so if you like, there's this proposal and counter-proposal, toughly argued, with witnesses appearing, evidence being presented, both sides arguing it out, and that's the best system we've come up to for deciding whether someone's guilty beyond reasonable doubt or not. And notice we don't prove their innocence. Just because you were found not guilty doesn't mean you're innocent. It just means you were found not guilty. Not guilty because you couldn't be found guilty beyond reasonable doubt. Now, reflecting on all of that and listening to Ali Evans is why documentaries bother me. I've never appreciated documentaries as a way of getting to the truth. I like documentaries about science, and I like documentaries about people, and I like documentaries about things where they're telling, if you like, a historical story where the heat's removed from it. Might be about Rome, like we don't get hit up about Rome in history or Greek history. Or even things like World War II now, we don't get so hit up about it. And so you can enjoy a documentary about that. But that's something that like even New Zealand history now has got hot and contentious. And you feel that any book or documentary on New Zealand history will be spinning a yarn, if you like, using particular facts to fit the story. So let's just come to documentaries and think about this, comparing it to a court case. They are so different, right? Because all you hear, if you like, is the prosecution. The journalist, the person telling the documentary story is like the prosecution. There is no counter. There is no defense. And so you, you, I can imagine if all you hear in a murder trial was the prosecution, you'd be sitting there enduring saying, oh, this person's clearly did it. If all you heard was a defense, you'd conclude clearly this person didn't. You actually need to hear both. And here's another interesting thing. The sort of defense in a trial gets access to the evidence that the crown, the prosecution has. Some of it may be unusable for legal reasons, but it's there. And when someone's giving evidence in a trial, they're on oath. No one in a documentary is on oath. So you have this remarkable situation where documentaries being put together, no one on oath, no one required to tell the other side of the story, no set standard, no actual critical defence. And so we saw, with fire and fury, the worst abuses of the documentary process. Because clearly, 
the journalist concerned had the story written before they started. This was the story they wanted to tell. And they assembled it, either consciously written down or just by way of thoughts. Oh, this is the story that we will tell. These people being manipulated by misinformation because they weren't relying on professional journalists because now we have the internet and there's people like, well, Rodney Hyde, who isn't a professional journalist, talking to people. And so they're being misinformed. And perfectly reasonable people like this lovely nana from Tauranga Ali Evans through misinformation is being rendered not just going to a protest but getting violent. And it was a big thing to them that there had to be this violence. And so Ali unwittingly became an actor in their story, the story that they were set out to tell. Never once did they test that story. Never once did they question themselves. Never once did they get, get people on that would put the other side. And, of course, even if they had done that, they would be patsies because they had a story that they wanted to tell. And it went so far as the journalist Paula Penfold messaging Ali. Oh, how are you? Did you make it home? Love to catch up. Yada, yada, yada. Oh, so sweet. Yada, 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 yada. And Ali reluctant to give an interview and then saying, well, you know, if we were prepared to talk about the vaccine injured, which is my concern, you know, and, 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 and talk to them, yes, yes, okay. And it proceeds. And then with the camera on, she got ambushed with questions like, you know, you've been violent before, you always violent, what made you violent? And the camera, over and over, showed Ali Evans telling a photographer to leave. Leave. My friends, leave. Leave. There's nothing violent inherent in asking someone to leave a group. You're perfectly entitled to do that. But in the context of the documentary, with the voice saying violence, and they were showing people throwing stuff and fires, Ali Evans was painted as a violent nana, radicalized by misinformation. Completely false. Completely misrepresenting a situation. Because no counter, no criticism, no obligation to uphold the truth, to tell the truth, none of it whatsoever. And then you have the experts weighing in. Oh, yes, no, this is how this happened. And there's poor Ellie. What? Just used. Used and abused to tell a story. The opposite, the very opposite of what she wanted to say, of why she went to the protest, and indeed the very opposite of her behavior. And again, this is why documentaries are so dangerous, because they're visual. And you realize so much of how we take in information is visually. Oh, no, it was true. I saw it. I saw Ali being violent. No, we didn't. We saw her asking someone to leave. But 
it was placed in this context of seeing violence and of having a documentary tell us this was violent, this was violent. It is classic propaganda. And yet we looked at that documentary, and if you didn't know better, you'd believe every word. And I guess this is how propaganda works. And it doesn't just have to happen the once. It has to happen over and over and over and over. So how many times did we hear that phrase, oh, misinformation, misinformation, violent protest, the ended violently, over and over and over and over until it becomes true? And literally we're brainwashed. And I'm brainwashed. I'm always being brainwashed. Every time you read something, turn on the TV, you're getting this image. And if you think you're not brainwashed, you know, you're missing what's it. The nature of the human mind, the nature of what's around us with the media, with Hollywood. And so the only way, again, we can escape it or see through it is to have open and free speech and to be opposed to different ideas and to have things that we've always taken for granted, questioned. Why do you think that? What makes you believe that? And you go back and you ask yourself. And if you come across someone who, when you ask them those questions, wave their hands, get angry, scoff, belittle you, well, they haven't got the facts or the argument on their side, and sadly they have been brainwashed. And have sympathy for them, because we all are, because we just don't have the ability to sift through all the knowledge and information. But on critical things, we can keep our open mind. And on things that we think are obvious, we have to be listening to the dissent and the critique and the criticism. And in doing that, we can get somewhere nearer the truth. Or we can discover that, yes, actually what I was thinking was right. But now I can reason it. I can argue it. I can defend it. Still doesn't make me right, but makes me better informed. And that's why that interview with Ali Evans, to me, was so significant. Because we got to look inside the making of a documentary and how it had a story to tell and it didn't matter what the facts were. They were going to be selected. It didn't matter what Ali had to say. What she said was going to be selected. And indeed, she was to be ambushed, to look puzzled and annoyed, like you're accusing me of being violent. That was enough. And a clip could be edited and put into a completely different context to suggest that this peace-loving, kindly Nana from Tauranga was radicalized and made violent. Why? Because she'd been misinformed. How did that occur? 
because people were listening to people other than us, other than journalists. And I think we're very, very lucky now, when you look at it, that the internet, that Twitter, Facebook, Telegram, all these abilities, RCR, have opened up the channels to us <clears throat> because it would be very, very dark indeed if we relied on the Paula Penfolds to be telling us the news because they're picking and choosing. And these days they're not even trying to be objective. They're telling a narrative. They're telling a story. And if you disagree with their story, you're a bad person. And they give us names, conspiracy theorists, Nazis, racists, genocidal maniacs, you name it. But again, that just highlights their absence of an argument. And at base, it's this too, behind it. There's a totalitarian thread running through all of this about a group who believe that they're right and everyone else is wrong. That is to say, the journalists are right and everyone else is wrong. And that they are right to be telling what they think and believe because everyone they know thinks and believes this. And they'll go to any length to push that story, that news, that documentary, including using people. So Ali became not an end in herself for the documentary, but a means to an end for the journalist pushing the story. How bad is that, that you use people in that way? And of course, that's why they can also happily label people who disagree with them with extraordinary names. Extraordinary, despicably. Oh, you're a climate change denier, right? I can disregard your view and you label it for all the public to see. Ali Evans, violent conspiracy theorist, misled by misinformation. So they label people. That means you don't respect them as an individual. That means you're part of a totalitarian movement where people aren't people for their own sakes but can be used and abused for the cause. Send us a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. You're listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Rally Check Radio. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Oh, we come to my favorite part of the show, mailbag, where I get the feedback. Uh, and it's great because you disagree with me and I go through it. I guess it's a bit 
tough because I get to have my have the last word, but I feel free. I'll try and do my best. Uh, free speech is not free when it has a manipulative agenda. Uh, grooming children with dysfunctional gender ideas is not on. Well, I don't mind people having uh, free speech and using it to manipulate us, but not children, because children need to be protected. That's why we call them children. Here's one from John Rodney. I respect your work and heart. Thank you, John. But here is my final message of this topic. Seema Hirsch has called it. Netanyahu dropped defences hugely and allowed for the attack to happen. Hirsch also discusses how Netanyahu actually helped fund Hamas into existence. Come on, man, if that doesn't make you scratch your head. And then there's a link to TASS, the Russian news outlet. And in fact, Netanyahu did apparently drop the defences, but it was because it was a holiday, a holy holiday, and he gave the men a break. Read into that what you will. But the attack still was launched by people, not the soldiers. And if a policeman fails to stop someone attacking you because it's their day off, it's not the policeman's fault. It's the person that attacked you, right? But, John, we're going to argue this, and it's great because we can and we should because it's important. It's very, very important. Not that we argue to a conclusion, but that we talk, we discuss, we debate. And at no time do we lose respect for each other. So I thank you for that. Rodney, I agree with you on children, but I also think free speech shouldn't be abusive. Well, it shouldn't be abusive. I agree with that. But just because it's abusive, I don't think it should be made unlawful because then we don't have free speech and we have someone deciding what is abusive or not. So I would hope speech isn't abusive, but I'd never stop stop it because it was by law and it was on my own property or on my show. Yeah. <laughs> Out in the public, nah, fill your boots. Okay, sorry if I came off kind of harsh. Oh, this is John again. Love your work, Rodney. Thank you, John. And I love you emailing me and texting me because I love to be challenged and I'm so often wrong. You've got no idea how many times I've been wrong in my life about so many things. Just a couple of more tidbits. Egypt warned Netanyahu of a possible attack, yet still he dropped border defences by the second or the third. Also, he received touting a new Middle East to compete with bricks, Silk Road, etc. How convenient. And then John says, also, Trump is using it as an opportunity to impose a travel ban, which include biometric exit entry IDs. Well, this is a terrible thing about every problem, isn't it? Every, every, every problem, that the challenge that the world has, our governments use it to regulate us and tyrannize us more because the civil servants are there. Oh, the people need protecting of this. Oh, someone fell off a ladder. Oh, we need to put signs up. Oh, someone someone, someone got hurt. Oh, make another sign. All oh, these people are going to attack us. Oh, we'll need to do this, do this, that. And it's all part of it, taking away our responsibility to look after ourselves and passing that responsibility to others, which is ultimately infantilizing us and dehumanizing us. 
air travel used to be so much fun. You just turn up and be exciting and you get on the plane. Now you feel like cattle going through security and taking your belt off and your boots and your hat. Man, oh man, they destroyed the fun of travel. But that's everything, even work. All the rules and the forms, building something. Oh my goodness, you've got to go and get this consent and that consent. And you think, why am I bothering doing this? And that's that's the trouble with, um, as you say, John, this attack. It's going to bring us more rules and regulations to fight terrorism, keep us safe. Not saying that terrorism isn't real, but we need to understand that ultimately we have to be able to protect ourselves. From Nairi, the propaganda being spewed on the mainstream media read the Israel-Palestine conflict is obscene. It is ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians. Max Igan, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his surname correctly, it's I-G-A-N, is a very credible man, familiar with the area, having spent a lot of time there. Please watch if you can spare the time. It is incredibly sad. No, it's incredibly sad. The whole thing is incredibly sad. I feel sorry, actually, for the terrorists, as strange as that may seem, because I think they have been brought up to hate and to kill. Um, and I feel sorry for them. But you have to be able to defend yourself, I think. And I come back to this. History convoluted like it always is, hard to comprehend, with peering backwards, grasping bits. I make my bias, as you like, as clear as I can, and that on one side of that fence is an open society, a de democracy where people have equal rights and can vote and have free speech, and on the other side it's a dark tyranny. And I always favour living in an open society, and there seems to me, and I'd be interested in a challenge on this, that there is a an asymmetry. And that if the Hamas laid down all their weapons, there would be peace, would there not? If the Israelis laid down theirs, what do you think would happen, dear listeners? And that to me is a difference. And I'm not blaming the Palestinian people because I think they have been brainwashed. And you might say, well, I've been brainwashed and subject to propaganda. Well, that's true. But I live in an open society where I can dig out and eke out information and to talk about it and debate it. And so... By living in an open society, I believe I am better informed and less likely to be propagandized than living in a closed dictatorial one. But, like I say, the beauty of living in an open society like we do is that we're here. We debate. We talk. And again, that was what was so bad about that COVID experience or climate change. Because debate and discussion are closed down. Hi, Rodney. Oh, I love it when we talk chickens because it sort of solves solves your soul. You've got to talk about the big stuff, but we, we can't all fix it. But chickens and gardening, very real and tangible and productive and helpful and good for your mind. 
rather than these terrible fighting and disputes and debates that go on literally for thousands of years with no end. Hi, Rodney. We have a chicken mesh with small holes around the perimeter and pinned to the ground to prevent predators getting in. No need to lock them up. Keep the great content. Cheers, Daniel. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, Rodney, apple cider vinegar in their water for worms. I guess that's for chickens. Ah, well, thank you. By the way, I got sent some beautiful um, pictures of just these gorgeous, gorgeous chickens. Oh, my goodness. Even I, who um, don't like chickens, thought they looked beautiful. And um, this was from Jan. And these little chickens feeding, they look so happy. And then a little girl with five chickens feeding them. Oh, my goodness. So sweet. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, send me a text, please, 2057. Email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. I love, love getting your messages. Even the ones that disagree with me, even the ones that have a suggestion uh, for how to do better. You know why? It's because we care and we want to do better. We care what you think. I respect what you think. And it's with that respect we're showing others how we can disagree and if you like still get along this is real talk with rodney hyde tuesdays and thursdays from 10 a.m you're on rally check radio it's real talk with rodney hyde isn't it funny how simple things give you the most pleasure and i just want to share with you something that gives me an inordinate amount of pleasure and i can't quite explain why and it should be a chore, but it's not. It's making bread. Uh, my little girl, 10 years ago, we discovered she had some intolerance to gluten, and it took us a while to work out. It took us about three months. She wasn't celiac. But if she had anything to do with modern bread, even like an ice cream cone, she would just curl up in a ball and lie on the couch not well for like 24 hours. And so we ended up buying gluten-free stuff, which was awful to eat, actually. Uh, but that cured her. And then I read that you could have sourdough bread, which is fermented more slowly, and all the proteins that are in the wheat get digested, apparently, and that that would make her be able to eat bread and be okay. So I thought, oh, I'll give this a go. Oh, my goodness, my first loaves came out like blocks. The kids still laugh about it. They would rather have eaten a brick, they say now, than eat that bread. But they did because Dad made it, and he was saying, look, this bread's wonderful. But over time, I developed the technique, and I experimented with making bread, and now every day I bake bread. Every day. I bake two loaves, and I always have a bit extra so I can give it away to friends and to family. And um, but we've also got, always got a supply of bread on. But there's something about the process to me of keeping the starter. So every day, every evening, I feed my starter. I find it very particular. It needs to be kept regular. Doesn't like travel. Doesn't like its routine disrupted. So I keep a wee jar of starter. It's like a bug, and it's got yeast and bacteria in it and I keep a little bit back, and then I add 100 grams of water, and I mill my rye 
So I've got a wee mill. So I put fresh rind, 100 grams, and I mix it up and I leave it overnight. It's a bit of a chore at night. Just doing that, I've got to do it each night. And then in the morning, when I'm alert, I take that and I add the bulk of it, 200 grams, to a bowl. I add 1,000 grams of water. I add 1,400 grams of flour. And I add... 36 grams of salt, and I mix it and just leave it. I just mix it with my hand. I leave it for, say, half an hour, and then I sort of gently fold it, leave it for another half hour, and gently fold that and put a plastic bag on it and leave it for the day. I don't do any kneading. And then I come back uh, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 o'clock at night. Um, I like to get it earlier than later because if it gets over-fermented, I find I don't get a nice lift. I take the bread out of the bowl, put it on the bench, divide it in half with a wee bread knife, and then tighten the loaf up so it's a nice little tight ball, leave it on the bench for 10 minutes, and then I flour it, turn it over, stretch it out, and then fold it and roll it and put it in a banneton and put two those two loaves in the fridge overnight. And then, of course, I repeat the cycle. I start my sourdough that night too for the morning. And then I take my banatons out in the morning, put them on a, uh, I put them on a wee breadboard. I slice them with a razor blade to give them a nice cut so they open up and don't burst unattractively. Put them in an oven on full bore for forty-five or fifty minutes, and I have the most wonderful bread. The wheat and the rye that I mill. Uh, gives it a beautiful flavor because wheat and, and rye have the oil still in them. They're not just a whole grain. It's not like wholemeal. It's like the wholemeal plus the oil. And so when you mill the wheat and the, or the rye, it has a sort of smell like cut grass that they have to take out if they're going to give you wholemeal because it'll go rancid. But if you mill it, you can use it within 24 hours and it's fine. And it gives a delicious flavor, just that little bit of wheat and a little bit of rye freshly milled. And I add the two together because it gives you a bit of variety of flavor. I've tried all combinations and permutations. And you can't, I find if I put too much wheat and too much rye in, um, it becomes heavy. And the kids sort of, chew their way through it rather than having it a bit light and puffy. So it's a trade-off between how much full wheat and how much white flour you have. But here's the thing. For some reason, I just love it. And it makes me feel very content and very satisfied just mixing it, baking it. And, you know, I think it's something in us that goes back a long, long way. That, you know ancient Babylon or somewhere where the farming first started and bread making started and took off. Or you're a member of Julius Caesar's army and everything is about the supply of wheat and that every five men, I think it was, would have a mill and they would hand mill their wheat and bake it. And 70% of their calories they used to make would come from the wheat, from the bread that they would bake while they're on campaigning through Gaul to keep the army fed. And, of course, through medieval times, bread-making, it stretches right back. It's like sitting around a fire or something. It goes way back to who we are, bread-making. It was the sort of origins of civilized living. And you're baking it just like they baked it. 
except I guess you've got an electric mill and an electric oven. But it's the process, and it's a process of feeding and nurturing yourself. I find it wonderful. I don't know why. And uh, if anyone's keen, text me, email me. I'll send you a quick recipe, and um, you will love it. There you go. My meanderings. Uh, you're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Rally Check Radio. Email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. Text me, 2057. Thank you for listening. The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. RCR is on a mission to revive honest media, and now you too can help make that happen. Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so. Receive exclusive benefits only for members, including your very own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions. And also, our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You can give us an email at inbox at realitycheck.radio or send us a text at 2057, 2057. Oh, and I've got my regular and all-time favorite with the listeners and with me. But boy, has he given me some work to do. It's our favorite gardener, Wally Richards. Good morning, Wally. Good morning, yeah, I stay out here in uh, Martin. Bit of sunshine. I see um, through your window there. You've got sunshine too. So, yes, well, um, if you could see further around, you'd see snow. Ah, right. We've got okay. snow in the hills. We had, um, we had uh, snow here on the ground for a night. Um, okay. So we're hoping for a good ski season. The experts tell me. That while the snow mightn't stay, what it does is it cools down the ground and then uh, they can make snow and it makes for better snow. And one of the interesting things I've learned a lot about snow, I don't ski, but my kids do, is that the tricky thing is you want sort of the snow attached to the ground and you can get a scenario where there's sort of water and then snow and the snow sort of slips away or melts and it's no good. So they're very pleased to have the ground getting cold now, ready for the big snow when winter thickens up. Okay, that's interesting. Oh, you become, you be, oh, I guess it's like, you know, how people talk about sur surfing or wine or gardening. It becomes its own little phrases and terms and how they describe the snow. And it's also like fishing. The snow's never quite right. So okay. there's always something wrong with the snow when you go skiing. But, Wally, why don't we start with this? We want to have a few things about what we should be doing in our garden just now, but we also got some wonderful uh, questions from the from the listeners, and let's just go through them, and okay. you can answer them. And please, if you've got questions, everyone, we're going to have Wally on every fortnight, so flick us a text, or you can ring him, and you can ring Wally directly if it's an emergency. He doesn't mind. 0800 466 His people will answer, by which I mean Wally. Or you can email Wally at wallyjr, as in J.R. Irving, 
wallyjr at gardennews.co.nz. It is an IQ test as I stumbled. The Garden News only has one N. You'll figure it out. Now, Wally, here's a question for you. Wally, please tell me if there is a way to deal with cutty grass that isn't going to be a huge manual labour or poison my soil. They're taking over land that I want for fruit trees. Thank you. Okay. Right. Well, cutty grass, in actual fact, is used as an ornamental grass for some people uh, mm. that like to have that native effect. Um, grasses have become quite popular in bark gardens and things like that. Um, I, I presume I'm not completely familiar with it, but I do know as a kid that um, you could cut yourself on the stuff because it's got a very sharp edge. And, it's called cutty uh, grass for a reason, right? Yeah, it, it, it can cut, that's for sure. Okay, now, she doesn't want to poison the soil. So with any grass, the most potent um, killer is a chemical called Roundup, in actual fact. Mm -hmm. So rather than spray the grass with Roundup, what you could do is make up a solution of, and this is quite important, to you take your Roundup, dilute it, um, I think it's 10 mils per litre of water, and you add one mil of rain guard into it. Now, the rain guard not only rainproofs your work, but it's also um, acts as a chemical bridge. And some of these plants, like cutty grass, um, they have a resistance on the leaf that doesn't allow the Roundup to get in. And that means it doesn't work. So if you add rain guard to it, so any shiny leaf plant or hairy leaf plant that's hard to get your Roundup into, you can use um, rain guard and it's only one mil per litre, and that acts as a chemical bridge, and that takes it into the plant, and the plant can't resist it. Now, if you make up a solution, and instead of spraying it, you get yourself a clean paintbrush, and it, say about an inch wide, and dip it in that and wipe it over the grass itself. That means it will stay exactly on the grass, not go everywhere, and it will go down and kill the grass. So that's the first alternative. And it's very effective because now, Roundup really kills grass. Just help me here. Is that rain guard that you put in your windscreen wiper or where do you get this rain guard? What is rain guard? Rain guard is one of the products we have ourselves. Um, it's on our mail order website, which is the same as our telephone number, www.0800-466. 464.co.nz. You'll find Roundup there, I think, under the pest control or under disease control. Um, it's a polyphenolamide film, which uh, is a little bit like, in fact, it's similar to VaporGuard, but a different formulation. And there was a question I see that uh, somebody was asking, is VaporGuard organic? Well, it's based on pine resin, as RainGuard is, and so it's natural. I wouldn't say that it's certified organic by any means, but it's a natural sort of thing, and it's not harmful to um, microbes and soil life and yourself, etc. So you um, get a bit of rain guard, one mil per litre. You get a bit of Roundup, which I think you said had 10 mils per litre. 
I think that's the formulation they have on the bottom. And then you get a one-inch paintbrush and you dab it on. Mm, um, Wipe it. Wipe it on. How much of the cutty grass would you need to hit with the Roundup? Is it half of it or three-quarters of it? Is it all of it? Or would 10% kill it? Um, Yeah. To the best of my knowledge, you don't need too much because it goes down. It's systemic into the plant and into the root zone and um, takes it out. So So you don't have to be too... um, Particular. Yeah, you don't have to. You can just cover the main big leaves, Mm. keep it off the soil so it's not going into the soil. It's staying with the plant. The plant will die. And presumably, what would you do once the plant's died, Wally? Um, Well, it will just naturally decompose there on the spot over a a period of days or weeks, whatever. Um, I suppose um, you could pull it out um, Mm -hmm. if it looks unsightly. Um, Yeah, I never thought of that. What do you do with it after a dead plant? If you spray weeds, you don't often go around. Well, I was thinking of the worry, if you're worried about the Roundup getting in your ecosystem and you've got a dead plant, chock a block full of Roundup, you might want to just get rid of it in the bin. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a point. Um, but one of the problems that I see that happens is, like, uh, people in lifestyle blocks or farmers, they might spray uh, weeds in the paddock for um, to control them and so forth, and um, the cattle comes in afterwards, and those plants that have been sprayed are very high in carbohydrates, sugars, right? Mm-hmm. And the stock love them, my God. Ah. And that's not particularly good for the animals. I can tell you a story there um, about yeah. how it affects the um, semen count of a bull. Um, how and, you, how, what are you doing counting semen in a bull? Oh, no, this is on a farm where they use a bull to um, inseminate the cattle, or the cows, right? Yeah. And um, in a particular case, this guy had used uh, Roundup on weeds in a home paddock, put the ball in there he had just bought uh, for that purpose. And uh, lo and behold, of course, the ball chomped up all the what's names. Uh, prior to buying the ball, he had done a semen count on the ball. Yeah, sperm count. It. Sperm yeah. count. Yeah, sperm, sperm count. count. Yeah. And um, it was good high. But after... Um, browsing the Roundup-infected plants and grass or whatever, and he got another spoon count done, uh, it would drop right out. It was, it was useless. How funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, well, uh, that's an, imagine what it's doing to us. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if it affects our spoon count or not, but uh, <laughs> I, a bit of a worry, yes. yes. <laughs> you worried well, Wally, aren't you? No, yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> if I'd known that, I wouldn't have had a vasectomy. <laughs> Too much information, Wally. Um, I'll come back. I would want to. Uh, so that was Roundup was one thing, and then you had uh, other suggestions. Right. We have a compound called ammonium sulfamate. Now, not sulfate of ammonia, but ammonium sulfamate. Now, here's an interesting story. Um, probably a couple of years ago, a chap from the UK, living in New Zealand, contacted me and he said, um, can we get ammonium sulfamate in New Zealand? 
And I said, never heard of it. What is it? What does it do? And he told me the story about how in the UK they used to be able to get it. It's um, powder crystals, dissolves very readily in water, and then you spray it over weeds. Weeds think it's nitrogen, so they take it in very readily into themselves, and it completely destroys the cellular structure, and it converts back to nitrogen. I said, really? He said, yeah. And no harmful effects to the environment, et cetera, et cetera, right? Okay, so we went out and initially I brought in a ton from India, then I brought in another ton from China. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's magic stuff. Ideally, like anything that's more natural, you need to use it on a sunny day when the soil is on the dry side. And my first experience with it, using it the ideal rate, which is 200 grams per litre of water, I filled up my knapsack, and, and it's the one that I only use for weed killing anyway, and started at one side of the house, went around, sprayed all the weeds around the house until I got back to where I started, and lo and behold, they were dead already. It was no. like paracrot. It, it was a very, very quick kill. Then I found if you used it at, um, say, around about 100 grams per litre of water and ideal conditions, um, some uh, annual weeds, they would die off over a period of a couple of days or so. Uh, harder to kill weeds uh, would take a bit longer. And some things like grass, um, it didn't affect. So here was an interesting thing that you could use it on um, broadleaf weeds in your lawn if you know the correct amount per litre of water by experimenting. So say, for instance, you might find at 80 grams per litre of water, um, it will kill the broadleaf weeds over a period of a week or so, but uh, not unduly affect the grass. And another use of it, and I think there's a question coming up somewhere, who is that it's used for composting, right? It speeds up the composting process, mm. breaks down woody material, and we do sell it as a super stump rotter where you apply it to a stump and then you cover it with a bag and it eats into the wood and breaks it down. I, I remember seeing a story on the internet where uh, a chap in the UK uh dropped some on his shed floor, the wooden shed floor, and he wanted to know how to stop his floor rotting away. Um, so it's quite reasonably effective. On and what is it called again? Ammonium sulfamate. And where's it cut? I mean, I know it comes from India and China, but what is it? Where, is it just mined out of the ground or is it bird poo or what is it? Do you know? Good question. I don't know. Um, probably like sulfate of ammonia, um, which is, Related to it to its point, um, it would be manufactured. Um, mm. Yeah, good question. And, I, and I don't know. If can you just take your result, eighty grams per liter? I think you said because mm -hmm. I don't know. The home gardener doesn't want to be doing too many experiments, do they? They just want to get it and put it on. 
So if they've got broadleaf weeds in their grass, they don't want the flaff of putting different amounts on in little wee squares. Um, they just want to get it and kill the weeds. Could they just go with 80 grams and call it the job done, or would that be a bit cavalier? Um, once again, uh, with any spray, it doesn't matter what type of spray, whether herbicide, insecticide, uh, fungicide, um, you never bowl in and use it without knowledge. Okay, Oops. Most dangerous. Like Oops. commercially, if you were to go and spray your paddock of cabbages with a insecticide and then found that all the leaves turned brown and the cabbages were no good, you'd, you'd be out of pocket by a lot of money, right? So what people do was to get the knowledge, they do a trial spray. And that should be to just a few, um, one or two plants of that variety you, you want to spray. Um, and as a result of seeing what happens over the next week or two, whether it's had any adverse effects or not, then you go and do the whole What's that? In fact, with some chemicals, um, that is in the instructions. Do a trial spray first before you do. Otherwise, you could be losing a crop worth several thousand dollars or your um, plants in your garden, which you cherish um, because you didn't take the precaution of testing it. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm, I've got to learn a bit more patience, Wally, because I tend to look at the instructions. Um, and then be on the safe side to double everything. <laughs> ooh, I'm, ooh. I'm very naughty. Um, so the thing is, with your plants, because you're in a peculiar circumstance or a particular, no, that's the wrong word, particular circumstance, it's quite wise. And they say this when you're using cleaning products and that too on your carpet. You don't do your whole carpet in a go. You sort of do a bit that won't be noticed if it goes wrong. Right. Um, to try it first. And and you suggest waiting a week or two and then you're into it. And then you'd keep a diary. And so next year you'd have a rough enough thing of what you could do. Yep. Yep. That's that's the way to go. How interesting. So even, even yourself, if you were dealing with a new product, you wouldn't go in if you weren't confident of it without actually just doing a couple of plants and waiting. Yeah, true. Um, for the home gardener, it's probably not so important because yes. you you might be losing, say, a dozen cabbages, right? Yeah, you've got you the backup of the supermarket. Yeah, but... <laughs> If you're a commercial grower and you've got an acre of cabbages, yeah. that's a lot of money invested in that, and you yeah. don't want to go and spray the whole lot got it. Uh, without the knowledge that it's not it's going to do the job you want to do without doing the damage you don't want to have happen. Mm. Mm. And, and is Roundup uh, a good product to be using if you use it um, carefully and putting it on the plants, would you spray Roundup in your garden? No, no way. You just put it on the plant? I don't even do that. Okay. No, I prefer not to use it. Uh, Roundup. Because of your sperm count, Wally. There's people that become sensitive to Roundup, and generally speaking, the home gardener um, 
without <laughs> being silly, like, for instance, uh, spraying with while his feet are in sandals, he should be in, <laughs> in a pair of gumboots. So yeah. not to get it on your skin because it does go into your body um, yeah. quite severely. If you've got a backpack, not to have actually a raincoat or something on, so to prevent any leakage going down your spine, which is something I learned in um, getting my licence uh, years ago when you had to have a licence for some of these mm-hmm. things. Um, most dangerous um, to have Roundup or any herbicide or chemical going down your back to get to the base of your spine and then where it goes in. Not good mm-hmm. for you. Um, so um, generally speaking, the reason that I won't use Roundup which I used to years ago. I thought it was a magic. It, it killed everything pretty well um, without too much problem. But then I had Sharpay dogs, and my Sharpay dogs started to get bad skin infections. So I took them to a chap who had the knowledge of being able to determine what um, the problem was, and he tested them, and he said, it's Roundup. So, and, wow. of course, after you spray your weeds and your drive and all the rest of it, the dogs are walking through it, Yeah. right? And, of course, they get it onto their skin, and then what do animals do? They lick themselves. Mm. And, of course, they get it into their body. Your Sharpay dogs have been, for the gardener, the equivalent of a canary for a miner. Yeah. So um, you've learnt over the years, Wally, to be very observant of things. Of course, yes, because with plants, you have to be um, to know when they've got a problem, when they haven't, uh, how healthy they are, how well they're growing. Um, A lot of gardening is actually with your eyes, looking and noting what is happening. Yeah, well, I've got to learn that because I tend to live in a bit of a um, fog. And I can walk past things and not notice things. So I have to become, it's very interesting about testing and uh, observing. And I tend to be, well, I'm learning with the gardening. I'm learning to be a lot more patient because mm. you know how you, we live in a here and now world, don't we? We I, I plant the seed, I want the cabbage. The idea of waiting for my cabbage. <laughs> I pop out every day and I say, where's my bloody cabbage? And it hasn't even sprouted, and I'm thinking I'm feeling it down. However, it's a bit like Christmas when you're a kid. When they do sprout, I'm absolutely ecstatic. Um, right. And I've got some I've got some seeds sprouting. They popped up through the soil, and I've thinned them out now, Wally, and I did exactly what you said. Um, I did it in the jolly rain because you said to get the, get the soil wet. And um, as it happened, I, I, I was out there and it started to, it had been raining and then it started to really rain. I thought, well, this is an ideal time. So I went and it was, they were sitting in compost and I got my uh, Brussels sprouts, cabbage and collie and onions. Goodness knows if they'll survive. And I thinned them just with a weed trowel in my fingers and I put them in a bunch at each end. And they look very, very sad, Wally. Um, mm-hmm. Even the ones that I thinned because I'd got a bit disturbed as I thinned around them. But boy, you know, the next day 
they were sitting up happy, happy as. Right. And I was so excited. And even the ones that I'd been a bit rough with because I shifted them and I was getting wet and I was getting frustrated that I put into a bunch, um, they're, they're sitting up happy too. Yeah, yep. Right. Oh, well, so thank you. That was Wally Richards on The Gardening Show, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You're on Rolly Check Radio. You can send us a text at 2057 or email us at inbox at rollycheck.radio. And you can give Wally a call, 0800-466-464. He loves taking your calls. We always joke that he has his people answer the phone, but it's him. Uh, or you can email Wally, wallyjr at gardennews.co.nz. That Garden News has one in. But Wally actually prefers a call because it's a bit like when you go and see your doctor or the motor mechanic. You'll tell them what's wrong with you or with your garden, but they've got some questions to sort of try and figure out um, what it is. But do drop us a line because we'll have more questions each fortnight that we have Wally on. And I think as we go into spring, we might have to have more Wally because the gardening the gardening business is going to uh, wind up. We'll talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for listening. Thank you. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's being ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Well, there we have it, Ali Evans' account. Oh, my goodness. Isn't it crazy that you sit there and you watch a documentary and you think, oh, huh, this is how it goes, because you assume they're telling you the truth. Nope. They're telling you a story. Your story. Always. Remember, send us a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. Thank you so much for having me along. Uh, thank you for sharing with me and with the other listeners Ali Evans' story of how she got done like a dinner. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio.